There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. G'day, folks, and welcome to another episode of Encounters Down Under. On this chapter episode, we'll be diving into the life of the legendary Bill Chalker, who is one of Australia's most renowned investigators and researchers on the UFO phenomena. Over the years, he has represented many organisations worldwide, as well as the author of the books The Oz Files, The Australian Story, and Hair of the Alien, DNA and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abductions. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel, Encounters Down Under Podcast, where you can watch the interview from our live stream. So let's welcome to the show, Bill Chalker. How you going, Anthony? Good, mate. Welcome to the show, mate. Good to have you on. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just do a quick correction. It was Hair of the Alien, the book, not Angel Angel Hair. Oh, why am I thinking of the Angel Hair? The feel is incredibly confusing. Yeah, no, that's sorry, mate. That's my fault there. Um, I think it must have been uh, when I was uh, might have been reading a bit about your experiences there. Might have um, you might have referenced it as like Angel Hair or something like that. I think that's, that's what right, I might have. Yeah. I think that's where I've mixed it up from. But mate, um, great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for joining us on here, mate. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on here. Um, so, mate, the idea here is to go and let people know who you are, what you um, you have done in the whole UFO phenomena aspect of things, mate. Um, so, by all means, mate, I'm going to let you take over, mate, and um, let people know who don't know who you are, who you are. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll just sort of try and quickly cover, what, 40 years or more. That's not easy, but anyway. Um, I, I guess I became interested as a young kid. Um, uh, I lived on the north coast of New South Wales, um, uh, at, at Grafton on the Clarence River, and uh, during 1966, there was a kind of a it was a huge year actually historically. Uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, um, 1966 was a massive uh, UFO wave flat year right across Australia and, and a number of places around the world. But uh, in little old Grafton where I lived um, as a young teenager, uh, I was kind of um, uh, just tapping, starting to become aware of the the UFO subject, which more often than not uh, still had the reference flying saucers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, and it was just slowly transitioning into that point. Um, um, the nomenclature was uh, UFOs. But during 1966, a lot of locals were reporting UFO sightings. I wasn't that lucky. I didn't see anything during 66. But uh, uh, one of the witnesses were, were two police officers that were pursuing UFOs across the countryside. And... Um, got uh, national, indeed, uh, international publicity. So that, that kind of twigged my interest. And, and between then and 1969, I, I started uh, reading up. Uh, and in those days, there were lots of uh, uh, mainly paperback books that were readily available. And just to give it, uh, listeners, a bit of an idea, um, um, you know, I was kind of, uh, the, main, the main book that I got into was this little humble thing, if I can get it in the camera, right? Yeah. 
um, what we really know about flying saucers by science writer Otto Binder. And that was kind of my, one of my early kind of references to the UFO subject. And those that he, there's been an excellent biography of Otto Binder published and talks about his interest. And in fact, Otto Binder was uh, very much a popular culture guy too, because uh, he was into doing a lot of the storylines of Superman and I think he created Supergirl, all that kind of stuff. So he, he was a, a uh, multimedia kind of guy and uh, before we even knew the term basically and uh, so um, that was one of the books that he published um, what, what we really know about you uh, flying sources and it was a bit of a slow take up here in Australia in terms of books and that kind of thing and the very first book that was sort of published in the field was this thing um, uh, flying sources uh, over Australia uh, yeah and by a guy called James Hollands, and uh, uh, that was coming out through, uh, I guess, a, a colourful paperback publishing press called uh, Horwitz Books, and uh, they looked as though they tended to be put together probably in a couple of weeks, basically, by pulp writers and that kind of stuff. But uh, it was a good collection of uh, what was happening, and that came out in 1965, and uh, uh, a few years later they got this book going, Flying Sources, um, Basically, where are I again? I better learn to put it in front of the phone. Yeah. Um, flying yeah, hold it back to about your face is. The people yeah. be able to see it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. A little bit higher yeah, up. So and, flying, yeah, flying okay. sources, um, uh, where do they come from? Uh, by Richard Tambling. Turned out Richard Tambling uh, was more into it than was obvious. He, he turned out to be a what they referred to as a contact T figure and claimed, uh, wait for it, that uh, the entities that... Um, Work, he was in contact with, were from Uranus, so I won't go down the other sort of smutty path alone, but anyway, <laughs> the, it, it, he was an interesting guy, but the book didn't betray much of that other than his flirtation with American contactee figures and some of the early photographs that were controversial. But uh, when he just covered the local UFO scene, it wasn't a bad book, and it got a lot of people interested in the subject. And, and as I said, uh, I... I the, the big year for me personally and also starting to get more actively involved was 1969. Now, um, for the stuff that I talk about, um, I'll, I'll encourage people to get onto my blog site, which is called uh, the OzFilesBlogspot.com. A lot of things I'll talk about, there are bits and pieces in that um, blog site that will uh, expand what I'm talking about. But in 1969, there was a, a book uh, uh, published uh, basically called uh, UFOs over the, the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, that was kind of like a, a bit of a, a bestseller, all coming from Horwitz books, basically. And so it was a popular kind of uh, publication and uh, publishing out for the people, basically. And what Michael Hervey did, which I think any hack writer could have done, basically, was that he trawled through all the UFO publications of all the civilian UFO groups of the day, um, and harvested all their material as much as he could get, and as many new newspaper archives. And he also did a, a bit of a publicity hunt and said that he was writing a book, and a lot of people wrote to him. And uh, so he was able to include a, a bit of a potted history arranged in uh, by state, and uh, in each chapter for each state, he would do a chronological kind of thing. The book suffered... Well, it could have used a lot of kind of... Uh, editing but ultimately it was a i think a, a worthwhile kind of um uh overview of what was happening on the on the civilian scene in particular 
um, and uh, it was very popular during its day. But during 1969, it was yet another major UFO flap year, and it was really the, the thing that got me involved was that uh, just to the north of Grafton, there was a place called Bunga Walburn, and it was uh, the, um, a farming property owned by the local member of parliament. And uh, back in those days, you know, parliamentarians actually had some credibility. But the, the, um, with this, uh, Mr Ian Robertson, uh, my family knew him and uh, I was able to get permission to rock on out there as a young teenager and uh, go out to the property where a large flattened area was found and, uh, of sackland crop, a uh, close cousin of sugarcane. And um, it got sort of huge amount of publicity across Australia and also internationally again as to was this a location where flying saucers have landed. So this was my first brush with the um, UFO phenomenon up pretty close and personal uh, an apparent UFO landing. And uh, there was all sorts of uh, um, accounts there of people reporting stuff right all over the north, uh, north of uh, northern New South Wales. And there were dozens of these so-called ground tracers. Now, I know that in more recent decades, it's been popularised and the term referred to them is crop circles. But really, uh, uh, I put a big demarcation between crop circles and UFO physical trace cases or UFO landing cases because they're, they're really not a, 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 to my mind, a, a shared phenomenon. Um, crop circles are entirely different kettle of fish and, uh, and they became popularised in Britain uh, during the uh, 80s, 90s and uh, been subject to all sorts of controversial claims and very rarely has there been a, a, a credible kind of UFO sighting associated with the creation of a crop circle. And then it became much more ornate and then you had the whole crop up, uh, field art, complex patterns. And once that started to happen, it was pretty hard to correlate uh, any um, kind of crop circles with uh, uh, the classic UFO landing cases. But 1969, it was really on. And for those that are interested to pursue that further, you can uh, check a, an article that I, I did a little while back um, on my blog that uh, gets into uh, 1969 in a big way. Um, and yeah, I called it 1969, the great UFO days of Oz. And there's a reason for that. I used the word, the spelling of days was D-A-Z-E. And I, I borrowed that from a, uh, a book that was doing the rounds at that time, or, or, or more recently called um, uh, I think Surfing Days or something of that, that nature. And it was uh, uh, a play on that because one of the witnesses that approached me was a, a, an Australian a surfing champion, a really controversial guy, Peter Drone, that claimed a UFO sighting back in 1969. So I got the chance to uh, interview him at great length just recently and uh, included his account. Uh, on my blog and so uh, 1969 was also a complicated story because basically after a couple of years Colorado University headed by Dr Edward Condon had finally published a, a report it was commissioned by the United States Air Force and they had trouble getting a hold of the university to do a, an alleged serious scientific study of UFOs and they finally after a couple of years uh, published a a two-volume report that then got put out uh, more accessibly as a kind of a paperback, and that came out in the beginning of 1969. And uh, but luckily, as a kid, I, I was a bit of a voracious uh, um, book reader, and uh, I managed to get access to a hardback copy of the Condon report, 
that was in the local public library of Grafton and uh, almost had it out on permanent loan for about six months and probably read it about six times. And most people didn't read the Condon report. They just read the conclusions and pretty much uh, what Dr. Edward Condon uh, concluded of the, in the report was that after two and a half years of study and uh, a few million dollars worth, uh, um, there was nothing of any scientific merit and that uh, students that showed a, a bit of an interest in UFOs, they should be given demerit marks if they took a serious interest in the UFO subject. But So basically it was uh, a report that was essentially about moving on, nothing of importance here. Let's just get you know, move on, uh, flying sources, UFOs, whatever they are, will go away. It's just a, a popular fad. You know, and um, the only problem was that the whatever UFOs were and are, um, no one informed the corpse uh, because the corpse resurrected pretty quickly and did it did so in an amazingly huge way in Australia during 1969. And and historically, Australia has had some years that have been major UFO waves. And uh, 66, 69, 1972, 75. 1978 and people are starting to see a three-year pattern that's something that we picked up on heavily uh active ufo researchers during the 70s and early 80s but unfortunately by the time uh, 1978 came along and that was a huge year um that cyclic pattern seemed to disappear and we weren't able to um keep keep a, as good a correlation on the um, the huge waves that seemed to occur both in australia and around the world but by uh 1970, uh, 71, I was sort of actively investigating uh, UFOs around the uh, north coast of New South Wales and also uh, particularly there was a what we referred to as a UFO flap area and the biggest one that we had at that time was down at Kempsey near Port Macquarie and uh, there was a lot of um, UFO sightings going on there so I spent a lot of time in Kempsey, got to know the associate editor of the Maclay Argus, the local paper there, and she was acting as a, not only as a, as an editor collecting UFO reports, she was actually channeling them across to the British Flying Saucer Review. So here's a local um, country, New South Wales newspaper associate editor, Patricia Riggs, acting as a, as a, um, a consultant for uh, an internationally known Flying Saucer ma magazine based in Britain the Flying Saucer Review. So a lot of the reports from Kempsey, New South Wales, were turning up in what was then regarded as one of the, the major UFO magazines of the world. And uh, um, and I had a bit of a a, 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 a front row position for that because uh, I used to trot backwards and forwards to Kempsey a lot during those days, particularly right through to about 75, 76. But uh, university uh, drew me to the University of New England at Armidale. And it was during four years there when I, I did a, an honours science degree majoring in chemistry and mathematics that I set up there on the college campus uh, a local UFO type of uh, uh, loose network. And, and we started to get known by a lot of the people around the air, media and all that kind of stuff. And so um, the word got around that if anybody had a, a UFO sighting, if they wanted to share it with anybody, uh, report to some weird guy at Page College on the university campus at uh, the University of New England, and he'd take a look at it. And it was through that process, uh, and we got a lot of reports, by the way, but it was through that process um, 
I think it was my second year at uni then, um, we, in 1973, and um, we got um, a report from an electronics technician at a place called Turingham. He was living on a property there. Uh, and Turingham, if you blink, you'd miss it. And basically, it was a little corner store. No corners, actually, in Turingham. It was just a through road, but they called it the corner store. And uh, uh, during 1973, for some bizarre reason, it became the focus of, of a mini UFO flap. And it got very, very intense. And the flap endured and continued. And basically, it became my UFO baptism of fire. Uh, it was literally... Uh, night after night, and uh, um, it was kind of like uh, gold for a UFO, early UFO researcher like me, because uh, one of the things that you like, particularly if you've got a, a scientific bent like myself, uh, you'd like to try and uh, operate in an environment like uh, the so-called repeatable experiment, i.e. one of the main stages of the scientific method, and that is uh, 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 you didn't have to just rely on other people's UFO testimony you could uh, go along and witness it yourself and do it repeatedly. And, and uh, this is what happened at Turingham. Um, for a period of a number of months, I was going backwards and forwards practically every weekend, um, investigating UFO sightings. And uh, um, most of the time it was kept out of the media. And that was a good thing in many respects because we developed a bond of trust with a lot of the locals. And... Uh, uh, it really was my own personal baptism of fire too, because when I arrived, uh, the UFOs didn't go away. They were still there, and I was witnessing uh, lights, playing games, manoeuvring over the nearby mountain called Boney Mountain, and uh, seeing all sorts of strange things. And it got up close as well. We were seeing dish-shaped objects. And uh, the crazy thing about this, and this has been repeated many, many times since by uh, with researchers right around the world that have got involved with... Uh, intense UFO flaps, um, and that is that whatever is involved, it seems to display a, an evasiveness that goes beyond mere chance. So that really got me into focusing on uh, what, what to me was at the heart of the matter, uh, trying to apply science to, to UFO sightings and being able to carry out what seemed to be a repeatable experiment. And I used to, uh, how shall I say, borrow steel whatever uh equipment from the university faculties you know and as talk to the uh yeah as you do yeah <laughs> just get it back on monday and one piece bill that'll be all good you know you know what's what by the way what are you doing with it you know don't worry about it you know it'll be all good so and uh as it was anyway we got i got tutors university lecturers uh fellow students others that joined me there during that period in 1973 and uh uh, pretty much everyone who came with me saw something, um, and uh, it was uh, quite an amazing time. And uh, that wave sort of petered out by about August. And, and it was during August, actually, that um, Dr. Alan Hynek, who most people who are at all interested in UFOs would know that Alan Hynek was the guy that came up with the term Close Encounters of Third Kind. Um, it was part of his category of UFO encounters. He was trying to uh, try and bring order to what was a pretty complex phenomenon. And the categories of place encounters uh, um, helped him uh, to uh, bring that sense of order to it. And the, that, that term emerged out of his 1971-72 book called The UFO Experience. And I really recommend that book to anybody who's at all 
uh, seriously interested in the UFO field, you can access it via uh, sites like, um, I think, Project 1947 or the NICAP website. Um, they have free PDFs of Heineck's book. And it was essentially a, a solid scientist looking at the UFO phenomenon. And he had the benefit of, it, of being dragged into the UFO subject as early as 1947 and 48 and brought in as an official consultant to the United States Air Force. And pretty much he saw it very skeptically then as a, I don't know, uh, it'll, as a temporary aberration that would disappear within a year. And um, that's the way it was seen at the time, but this didn't go away. And then he got heavily involved with it during Project Blue Book um, and uh, became one of the longest serving scientific consultants to the United States Air Force uh, until the uh, Project Blue Book officially died and was closed in 1969. Um, but as we all know, there were various projects that were conducted in a rather more stealthy way since then. So, um, so by that stage, um, by, by during the 70s, um, uh, after I finished my science degree, um, I got a job uh, working as a, uh, a chemist uh, through the TUI's organisation. Actually, it's one of the reasons why I went, went to uh, University in England because I won a science scholarship with them and it gave me the opportunity to do, um, you know, a lot, a, a get sort of vacation work and all that kind of stuff. So it, it set me up fairly well and, and also set me up with a job when I came to Sydney in 1975. And that's when I joined the local UFO group, UFOIC, uh, UFO Investigation Centre. Yeah. That's, that, that gets you to, through to at least 1975. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, just to give you a heads up, we might drop out here because um, I'm using the free version of Zoom at the moment. And I just had a 10-minute warning come up before, so we may drop out. But um, if that does happen, we'll get you back in there and hopefully continue on from there. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll wait and see what happens from that. So it'll be interesting. It's the first <laughs> time it's happened to me so far. So, But yeah, either way. Um, <clears throat> So going on, um, just going back onto where you um, got reading, started reading into your books and stuff like that. Um, got some questions here for you. If, um, someone's asking, um, were these early authors more rewriters than actual investigators? Uh, no, a number of them were um, sort of. Oh, there we go. <laughs> We've lost it. Ta-da! We're back. <laughs> No freebies in this business. No, it's not. It all costs bloody money to do this. <laughs> and I'm too tight to go and pay for a Zoom membership. And I'm, Yeah, so um, so we'll, we'll crack back into that again, mate. Uh, we'll start again with that question there because it's an awesome question. Um, so, righto, here we go. Um, all right, start again. So, uh, were these early authors more uh, rewriters than actual investigators? Uh, there are a lot, a lot of hack writers. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, yep. you come through fine, mate. Yep. 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 Okay. So a lot, a lot of these early writers um, were kind of uh, um, capturing a lot of media and, and uh, write-ups in that way, but there were a, a number of researchers that were actually dealing with original material and the, the likes of Donald Keogh, um and uh, Edward Rolpop, who was the uh, uh, probably the, the better of the... Uh, U.S. Air Force investigators with Project Blue Book, particularly around 1952, 53, um, he published a book uh, about flying saucers. And uh, so you can get access to 
uh, hardcore data through some of those types of writers and others were starting to come onto the scene. But it was also a period where there were many, many books turning up and a lot of it was, how shall I say, um, you could hear the trees screaming as they've been cut down to be used as paper to publish some of these early flying saucer books and uh, they weren't worth, worth the paper that they were, they were published on. But there were a lot of core UFO books and, uh, um, and there was a kind of a, a run of uh, good writers and uh, turning up particularly, uh, and even early journalists. Now, um, the last few years, particularly since the New York Times story has come out, has seen a, quite a number of hardcore journalists sort of jumping into the subjects uh, like a, our own Ross Coltart here doing a deep dive into the UFO subject here. Uh, with his book and documentaries. Um, and back during the 60s, there were some uh, early journalists that were heavily into it. And one of the key ones was uh, John Fuller. And I certainly recommend his books. He, the first one he wrote was in 1965, Incident at Exeter, which uh, basically attempted to uh, document uh, what was then a massive UFO wave right across America. And the following year, he came out with a much more controversial book called The Interrupted Journey, which was essentially the, the book that focused on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction story. So it was one of the first major abduction narratives that got serious mainstream coverage. And, uh, and from that point on, there was a plethora of books turning up. Um, and, uh, and as I said earlier, one of the best of the uh, early crop of books, uh, as far as I'm concerned, was Dr. Alan Hynek's book uh, from 1971-72, uh, uh, The UFO Experience. John Peel was very popular. Jacques Vallée came out with a number of books during the 60s, um, a couple that were strongly science-focused, uh, Anatomy of a Phenomenon and Challenge to Science. And then he did a bit of a, a change of direction with probably one of the more controversial books, um, and that was um, Passport to Magonia, which essentially was drawing a connection between the flying saucer phenomena and uh, I guess um, fairy lore or, or alternate folklore um, and uh, it was um, kind of a an interesting sort of um, watershed book and it caused a bit of a change of direction in terms of the focus of the uh, more serious UFO investigators and at, at the same time John Keel was coming out with his book Operation Trojan Horse I was reading that um, as a um, an early book uh, during my university years, and he brought in the concept of UFO windows and alternate views on what was going on here, and that it wasn't necessarily um, the extraterrestrial hypothesis at play. Uh, me, I was just being led by the data and what I found in terms of my field investigations. So uh, uh, by 1970. Um, uh, we were running a pretty active kind of UFO investigation scene in, in Sydney and uh, joining a lot of the other civilian groups around Australia. Uh, there were active UFO groups in Queensland and Victoria, uh, South Australia, uh, particularly Tasmania uh, and Western Australia, and indeed um, a couple of ad hoc groups in the Northern Territory as well. So uh, we're, we're covering the scene everywhere, and even the ACT was represented with a UFO group as well. And what we didn't know at the time and uh, uh, was that uh, there was a, a level of official interest and also a lot of secret official interest as well. 
uh, right throughout the history of the Australian UFO phenomenon, there's been this uh, um, the perception that the official government examiner of UFOs or flying saucers or uh, UFOs, or as they prefer to call them, UASs or unidentified aerial sightings rather than UAPs. It's a real word salad game here with the UFO subject these days. Now it's UAPs. Uh, but during that period, um, the RAAF was the official government examiner of the Royal Australian Air Force, Department of Defence, um, and they were the, uh, that was the department that got the, uh, the brief to study uh, flying saucer UFO, UAS reports. Uh, but meanwhile, there was a lot of secret activity going on behind closed doors as well. And uh, the main key player, I, I, I got to, uh, the, the government of the day actually said, and the Department of Events said on a number of occasions that uh, members of the public could actually get access to some of the flying saucer reports um, just by contacting the RWF and they would be happy to share that data. Well, didn't quite work out that way in reality. What it represented was that you would get at best heavily redacted reports um, and virtually bugger all detail. So it was essentially, yeah. Um, so people like myself, we were sort of trying to be a lot more active and, and uh, trying to get direct access. And uh, lucky enough and amazing enough to me, I got my foot in the door in uh, late 81, early 82, in January of 82, I had the first of what turned out to be four visits and uh, uh, spread out over two years in which I got to examine pretty much the a continuous run of files. Uh, I don't think they were quite expecting a researcher like me to turn up on the doorstep at the um, Russell offices in Canberra. Um, but I arrived on day one on the Monday. Um, they soon turned up with two or three large mailbag type things full of files. Um, and um, then um, decided, uh, said, uh, go at it. And they lent me the office of the director of public relations office uh, to uh, have my file examination in there and I could uh, photocopy stuff at my leisure, which I thought was pretty amazing. And then, then about an hour later, they arrived again and said, sorry, we have to pull back these files because most of them weren't declassified at the time that I saw them. And so some poor bugger had to go through and stamp every single page declassified. Uh, and then they all came back during that first hour I thought there were going to be games, but I didn't expect that. And so I, I, I did a quick inventory during that first half hour hour to see exactly what I had, wrote down all the file names uh, so that I could confirm that everything came back to me intact. Uh, and then over, uh, they thought that that would be it, um, that I would be happy and, and leave happy that day. But uh, I arrived the Monday and left on the Friday. So I was there from nine till five uh, for five solid days going through all these files. And eventually figured out that this was about a third of the case file and spent most a lot of my time focusing on the, the more interesting cases but also on establishing a paper trial and writing down every file name file number series that i could lay my hands on and, and then at the end of that process i was then able to submit to them okay thank you very much for that file examination now i want to look at all these other files and and kept that process up for, for two years just Few solid years and um, uh, and through that process I got to know uh, of a gentleman by the name of Harry Turner 
and turned out that he had just retired himself. And um, and and I found out I I, I found reference to him in a uh, eventually in 1984 of a um, no, actually 82 I think um, of a, um, a report that he apparently had written and this was I found in in a um, uh, policy file and this was a a collation an early study of the DAFI files now DAFI interesting term but DAFI stands for Directorate of Air Force Intelligence and back in 1954 they were being hammered by the government of the day because there were all these unexplained flying saucer sightings and they wanted an explanation and it just so happened at that time there was this um, scientist, a, a, a nuclear physicist by the name of Harry Turner, who had official secret clearance, but he was doing nuclear research. He'd been to Harwell in England and uh, been involved with the early days of radar establishment in Australia um, and um, was a credentialed scientist and at that time was at Melbourne University. And he asked to see if he could get access to the government files, which he that was facilitated because it was like manna from heaven for the government or for, for Air Force Intelligence because here they could get an actual scientist to study the reports to see whether uh, there was anything legitimate. They were hoping he'd come back and say it was all crap, rubbish. But he studied the reports and came back uh, with a series of, of conclusions that weren't quite what they wanted. And that was that these reports represented possibly extraterrestrial craft um, that we should be conducting a serious scientific examination, we should concentrate on radar cases, and uh, and that US Air Force data that he had access to, courtesy of Donald Keogh's best-selling book, um, uh, uh, he had published a book that had US Air Force case data on it, and those cases were uh, full of um, unexplained cases, and the US Air Force were conducting a bit of a vendetta campaign against Donald Keogh, arguing that he had inappropriately used Department of Defence data and that he was not to be trusted and that he was a science fiction writer. And this is the kind of stuff that, that um, the US Air Force were telling Australian authorities when they wanted to do their own due diligence and check with Washington authorities as to whether Turner's conclusions on Australian data supported by US data were legitimate. And because of that undermining of the US data, which in fact was legitimate UFO cases given to Donald Keogh by the United States Air Force, um, the Australian government decided not to uh, pursue most of Harry Turner's key reports and key conclusions. Uh, and yet there we had it way back in 1954, long before our recent Pentagon reports and all the rest of it, same sort of thing. Uh, government scientists doing a scientific appreciation of the data and concluding that there was something definitely worthwhile looking at. And uh, um, and yet that he was shut down. Um, and eventually he went off to England, came back, then became the chief scientist at the Maralinga bomb trial where the, he was acting on behalf of the Australian government and was the chief health physics officer during these very controversial and rather notorious uh, British atomic bomb trials. And th there are actually reports during that period at Maralinga and also at Woomera, uh, which he was he became privy to, 
Um, and then eventually, uh, by the end of the, the 60s, he had become head of the nuclear science section of the uh, director of scientific and technical intelligence of the Joint Intelligence Organization here in Australia. Um, and from that position, he actually conducted his own UFO research on Joint Intelligence Organization time. And that was confirmed to me by Harry Turner's boss, um, uh, Bob Mathams, who was the first of the scientific intelligence analysts uh, for the predecessor of the Joint Intelligence Organization, and that was JIB. And, and Bob Mathams told me uh, that, sure, you know, uh, I know you're after Harry Turner and I can help you find him, um, but I didn't exactly encourage him in this flying saucer work and his UFO obsession, but uh, basically because we needed his nuclear science expertise, they were prepared to tolerate that. And, uh, and that's how we ended up having a, a secret UFO science war going on within the Joint Intelligence Organization between the 1960s and early 70s, where Harry Turner was actively trying to advocate serious scientific investigations within the military intelligence regime. Um, if you want to find out a little bit more about that, you can go to my blog, but also in New Dawn magazine, I've currently got an article in, in the current um, issue called Harry Turner and the fight for uh, um, UFO science in Oz, you know, um, so a very interesting guy. And uh, he actively tried to pursue establishing a scientific investigation. And through him, I was able to track down quite a number of key government intelligence, military scientists that were actively interested in the UFO subject or actually going to join Harry in a rapid intervention team that was being set up, particularly under the auspices of the DSTO, the Defence Science and Technology Organisation that came into being during the early 70s. But basically that all came to a grinding halt because of uh, a lot of uh, somewhat petty uh politicking that went on and uh, basically uh, um that early attempt at ufo science within our own government and military intelligence establishment sort of came to nothing um particularly after harry had retired uh, he was the main primary driver of it but i had people as high as dr john farrens who was the chief defense scientist uh, i was told that he had an active interest in ufo reports i thought what the hell, I'll give him a call. He'd just recently retired, written a book, uh, not about UFOs, but about the uses and abuses of science. And uh, I fully expected to get a bit of a, a difficult hearing from him, but uh, he was quite friendly. In actual fact, had his own copies of government UFO files uh, within his hand's reach, and he was able to give me basically detailed file references to things that I should pursue. And uh, he said that he was even thinking of writing his own UFO book, but in the end didn't and uh, uh, said he'd wait for mine to appear. And that was in 1960, oh, sorry, 1996. Uh, and it came out during July, but unfortunately, uh, John Farron's passed away uh, in uh, July, uh, a few weeks after my book came out. So, uh, which was kind of sad, but he definitely had an active interest in the UFO subject as well. So there was a lot going on and uh, a, lot, a lot of, secret activity, um, but also a lot of civilian activity. And uh, really, uh, uh, I think I've got to put a, a uh, 
a, a positive thing out here for civilian groups um, around Australia and around the world that uh, without those groups sort of carrying the torch, uh, uh, we wouldn't be in the position that we are today where there appears to be a massively increasing interest in UFOs or U UAPs to give it the current term. Yeah, you'd think with all these um, groups and that coming out and uh, with obviously the government coming out with forward with their own disclosure, like the US government particularly, that it'd be taken a lot more serious around the world, but yet it still has this bit of a stigma attached to it. And it's like, why is that still there? Even though the governments and all these groups are coming out, you know, giving these well, you know, evidence and such. Well, uh, there's a long history uh, here and... Uh... I'd certainly recommend uh, people that who who are keen to pursue this angle to uh, uh, have a look at um, uh, Ross Coltard's book um, uh, in plain sight and a number of other books that get into this area to try to dig down to it. But I got involved with a, a book that was put together by what was called the UFO History Group. This was a group that included me here in Australia and a number of active researchers in the United States that were interested in the science and the history in great depth and a book was published called UFOs and Government and I can't recommend that highly enough. Um, it's a massive um, study of the um, efforts of government to either uh, bury or study uh, UFOs over the decades and uh, 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 there were quite a number of authors but the key authors uh, were Dr Michael Swords and, and Robert Powell and Robert Powell has gone on to create a, a new group. He was originally the science director for the MUFON organization, but felt that uh, he couldn't do the kind of science that uh, he was trying to do and formed the SCU, which was initially called the Scientific Coalition of, of uh, UFO Researchers, but because of the popularization of the UAP term, it became the SCU again, the uh, Scientific Coalition of UAP Researchers. Um, and I can understand the transition to that more neutral term, but to me, it kind of also uh, sort of avoids poking at the elephant in the room, so to speak, where there's this massive UFO phenomenon that's far stranger than just objects flying around the sky. Uh, there's a lot of quite extraordinary things going on. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of things going around. There's, um, well, obviously, there's like a lot of things that do get explained away, like, you know, mistaken a lot, but... There are those big hard ones there that are fully questionable that you can't explain, and like they're the ones you're supposed to be taking more serious than anything. But yet, yeah. it doesn't seem to get the limelight that it deserves. Yeah, well, a lot of people sort of talk about uh, December 2017 as being the turning point because that's when the uh, New York Times came out with their kind of breakthrough uh, news report, um, which highlighted the existence of a secret Pentagon program, um, ATIP, but that, that was a bit of a mistake at that time. Uh, it was actually something, yet another piece of word salad, uh, ORSAP, which uh, in fact was a defence intelligence agency initiated project that had more of a stronger focus on the notorious Skimwalker Ranch in Utah. And it was not only studying UFOs or U UAPs, but also studying the wider dimensions of the UFO phenomenon that people like myself um, were quite well aware of for decades, and that was the the rather stranger dimensions of it, the uh, what, for want of a better term, we'll call paranormal. And uh, uh, it, it just recently, I, I, there was a book, a really good book, 
published in 2005, I think, uh, um, Hunt with a Skinwalker, and that was put together by uh, George Knapp and Col Cole Kellen. It was an, the initial look at what was going on in the Skinwalker Ranch. But just this year, there's been a publication by, again, by those two authors, but they were joined by the key player that initiated the um, Defence Intelligence Agency involvement in the Skinwalker Ranch and more broadly in the UAP phenomenon, and that was uh, Dr. James Lukatsky. And amazingly for him, he had never had what he regarded as any sort of paranormal experience, yet within two hours of turning up on the Skinwalker Ranch, uh, because he, he had read the book, um, the earlier book, and thought we, we should really look at this because there might be some sort of threat aspect to it. And he, he was a, a government scientist, mainly into uh, missiles and, and propulsion, that kind of thing. But then uh, he arrives at the ranch. He's there with the then owner, um, uh, Robert Bigelow and uh, Cole Kellner, and uh, we're in the, uh, one of the, the buildings there and then uh, has what appeared to be a, a kind of an extraordinary experience of seeing a, a rotating thing. And if anybody's familiar with records, check out the cover of Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. It shows a, a kind of a little kind of um, metallic pipe looking thing, a peculiar shape. And that's what he saw hovering inside the house and only he could see it. And he, he didn't describe that to uh, the people around him, but he knew straight away there and then that there was something quite bizarre going on. If he could manipulate his mind, his perception and create that kind of effect on him, after just two hours on the property, he thought there's something really worthwhile looking into. And so he, he managed to get funding to uh, subsidise a, um, a combined investigation by uh, um, Bigelow's organisation, BASS, and the Defence Intelligence Agency. And most of the key defence military people that came from DIA all had strange experiences almost immediately when, whenever they were on the ranch. Now, um, a lot of that's described in passing detail in this new book, um, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, rather somewhat lurid title, but, but it's a really worthwhile book getting your teeth into. I, I described some of the correlations between what the DIA people were encountering at Skinwalker and my own experiences back on, on the Dorigo Plateau at Turingham way back in 73, we were experiencing very similar phenomena. And even Harry Turner encountered um, accounts from people within the Canberra area that he was studying on, once again, JIO time, um, that correlated with things that the DIA people were encountering. And they also had this bizarre aspect of what was referred to as the hitchhiker effect. Now, that, that can be given all sorts of different terms. And if you spread your net broadly enough, you can correlate that term with the, the kind of strange effects that occur in all sorts of paranormal type phenomena. Now, um, it sort of begs the question that we really should be looking at the UFO phenomenon very broadly, uh, much more broadly than uh, the new Pentagon agency will be doing. And that is focusing on cases that are in strictly military domains and part of the problem uh, with all the decades that I've been involved, I've been advocating serious open inquiry from science and dedicated researchers 
always trying to make it open and broadly available for everybody. And yet we seem to be turning the other way where it's becoming now a, a very skewed kind of uh, almost secretive uh, investigation yet again. And uh, we really don't need to have yet another kind of project boobal thing that's sort of um, said something publicly, but all the good stuff is being kept confidential and classified. So uh, we'll wait and see. But certainly the publicity uh, over the last few years has generated all sorts of more mainstream and more public kind of responses like Project Galileo uh, through um, Harvard University with Valuelog. Um, it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. And there's been numerous other interesting manifestations as well. So it, it seems to be a very interesting time. It, there's less debunking going on, less ridicule. But it, as you point out, that's still there. It, it's still hard for people to report, M mainly because um, most reports are anecdotal. It's based on the word of the individual and very hard to um, come out and put, you know, it, it's a hard thing to decide whether you want to go public with a lot of reports and that kind of stuff. But that makes it more difficult for investigation and research. And there's got to be a, a middle ground where there's an environment in which credible cases can be researched and, and people can carefully and um, bring out their own experiences, particularly those that are extraordinarily compelling. Um, and I know with the decades that I've been involved with, that's been a pretty difficult thing for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I honour a lot of the people that have talked to me over the decades, and I've talked to thousands of people, and uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of them that are incredibly compelling witnesses, and I admire their courage in coming forward. It's incredible what's um, been progressed over the years, and it's, um, to me, I sort of feel like it needs to get that sort of outsourced sort of thing, like sort of like, um, what the Two to Stars Academy sort of did. They're also a bit behind closed doors with some of the stuff they did, but. I sort of feel like yeah. with all these experiences that the uh, the military or even just like getting things that are getting reported to the military or any sort of government forms, I sort of feel like it needs to be outsourced to other companies or organisations to go and really throw into this and go dive deeper than take up the time of what the military um, officers or investigators, you know, instead mm -hmm. of taking up their time, why not get the other organisations out there to go and do the dirty work for them, basically. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <laughs> I don't know whether I'd call it dirty work, but I, I, th- I think there's certainly a field that really screams out for um, multidisciplinary inquiry, etc. And there's a hell of a lot that can be done in the public domain, in the public science sphere. And uh, what's encouraged me is that it seems to be a narrowing of the barrier, the full-throated kind of debunking sceptics that you used to see back a few decades ago, and still a bit today, they're becoming, their uh, foundations are becoming pretty rocky and very flimsy, and uh, they're finding it harder and harder to um, cope with the kind of cases uh, that are being presented to them or they're finding out about. I, I think they're starting to realise that there's something compelling to all this UFO data. That maybe the crazy UFO people and the UFO researchers were actually onto something that uh, they're way behind the eight ball on, and, and they're busily struggling to catch up now. And uh, perhaps are uh, thinking, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't have really killed that witness. We shouldn't have, you know, we, there may have been compelling data there, that kind of thing. So. There's a lot of that going on, a lot of catch up. And uh, I think that catch up process should involve a serious kind of coordination of uh, those that have done the hard yards, uh, compelling witnesses over the decades, the historical research, the, the data that's been gathered by civilian UFO groups, all that kind of thing. All of that should be brought into play in terms of both calibrating the current attempts to do things. It's kind of like everybody's jumping in saying move along, step step to one side, we're taking over now. But most of those people don't seem to understand the dimensions of the phenomena that, that's been going on for decades. Most of this, there's nothing new. It's all been done before. It's all been said before. It's all been researched before. And yet it's all being presented as brand new discoveries. Um, I, I guess the best thing about what's happening now, particularly with the military data, is that it's, it's full of uh, uh, multi-sensory data. Uh, and that's what makes it even more compelling. But that uh, multi-sensory data does exist in various forms going back decades. You know, the radar visual cases over the decades and all sorts of other types of compelling cases. So there's a rich database there that it's existed for decades. And uh, that UFO corpse that was dead and buried in 1969 is still thrashed around out there and it's still <laughs> reoccurring and still upsetting a lot of people that come into a bit of a close encounter with it as well over the decades. It is, and I think it's going to continue that way too. It's never going to stop until we actually do finally get that massive disclosure that everyone's been waiting for. So until then, well, the mystery I, I, is going to continue. Yeah. <laughs> I personally really couldn't give a stuff about disclosure. Uh, basically, I think there's been disclosure on for decades, and there's really um, lots of uh, data out there already, more than enough to carry on serious kind of open investigations. And... Uh, active field investigations you know like we don't have to wait for the government military to uh, uh, conduct their own private inquiries and come to their conclusions and rely on their data that time is well and truly passed there are many amazing kind of uh, initiatives that have been carried out over the decades that we're starting to get marched out again through the uh, the background of solid history but there's also major initiatives going on right now that are not in the military domain not in the government domain, and, and they're the kind of things that we should be looking at, not waiting for some precious kind of disclosure that'll maybe come out through government. Uh, I think the uh, 
so-called elephants already bolted through the door and uh, I think there's a lot of massive ca uh, catch-up going on. Um, you know, it's not a phenomenon that's unique to uh, military intelligence. Uh, it's a phenomenon that's being experienced by, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people right around the world and it really deserves to be examined openly, not through military um, intelligence and restrictions there. I, I can understand the so-called threat analysis, that kind of stuff, but uh, if there was a threat going on, well, you know, it uh, uh, would have manifested decades earlier. Uh, and really the main priority, I guess, is that they want a piece of the action. They want, they want this technology and they want, they want it now and they want it to look after their own defence technology, not be sort of outgunned by other people, you know. So it's a pity that threat analysis still seems to manifest, but uh, there's a lot that can be done in the public domain. Yeah, I think more uh, my uh, reason for the disclosure side of things is more so like the people who have experienced something and have been ridiculed over all these years, it's just so they can go back at the people who don't believe and who ridiculed and just go, haha, in your face kind of thing. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's, I can, I can that's get, sort of I can what we want. That. Yeah, yeah. So um, but, we are going to get the timer up again, so it's going to cut out on us in uh, another six minutes. So I think we might just go and do a quick little shutdown of this and get you back in again, and this will be the last little segment we'll do for the half hour. Okay. Um, so just give us a minute there, guys. We're going to go and get this back going again because um, thankfully we're using the uh, free time of Zoom again. <laughs> so um, give us a minute there, guys. We'll get uh, Bill back in again, so just bear with us. So, um, mate, I want to... Um, someone has asked here too, and I want to get on this one as well. Um, so someone has asked... What has to be the most memorable personal experience in witnessing your UFO? Um, so, yeah, basically, what's your most... I suppose you would have had to experience something yourself, wouldn't you? Uh, yes, indeed, yeah. Cherry Amp, for starters, and back in 73, that was quite confronting. So. Um, pro probably, um, I, I guess, in, in terms of rattling my cage, so to speak, probably the year before... Um, you know, I, I described earlier all that sort of stuff happening on the Dorigo Plateau at Turingham and dragging people down and witnessing all sorts of phenomena. You know, that really made it very, very real. But the year before, um, in 1973, and I think September, I think thereabouts, um, uh, 1972, I'm uh, doing uh, chemistry, and I remember it was um, a... Um, I just finished a chemistry practical class and they went four solid hours where you're, you're doing chemistry experiments and whatever. And once you finished them, the high priority was to uh, get down that, that bloody hill and get to the cafeteria before it closed in your college so you could have dinner. And and so I'm tearing down the hill, running across the quadrangle just to get in there to get the last of the food that was uh, about to close in the canteen. And uh, I see two students walking across the the quadrangle and male and female, I, I kind of vaguely knew them. And um, the guy's looking up and the girl's saying to him, uh, you see what I see? And he says, yeah, but I don't want to. And I thought, what the, what the hell are they on about? And and uh, I'm looking up. I looked away from them um, to look in the direction what they're looking at. And I look up and I see it was just coming up to twilight. So there's still a lot of daylight around. I looked above the... Um, the building of the campus, um, Elvage College, and I see a, literally, I suppose, quite everybody 
is into um, Tic Tacs. But uh, yeah, this was an egg-shaped silvery metallic looking thing um, flying slowly across above the campus building. And um, it seemed very solid and quite sizable in terms of relative dimensions. Now, here am I, by that stage, I'd done a lot of investigations and that kind of stuff. So I, I, had, I had a an idea of what I was doing basically. And um, I thought, uh, this is unreal. You know, like I'm seeing a, uh, if it's around about 200 to 300 feet as to what my uh, intuitive perceptions were suggesting, this thing was about 30 to 40 feet in diameter, you know, quite large. If it was any higher, it would have been huge. Um, and it wasn't undulating or it was very steady in terms of its flight. So it appeared to give the impression of being a large object, a large solid object. Um, and I could see that it was tracking above the building. And I knew that between me and open sports field behind through a, a narrow laundry um, section of the side building, I could run through there and get a continuous observation of the object. Um, and if it was a balloon or and that certainly didn't seem likely, I'd be able to see it. Um, and I rushed through in a matter of seconds, nothing there. So I had huge playing field exposure and could see nothing. I ran back through again, nothing there. Um, earlier in the day, oh, actually, I, I did investigate that, into, obviously, uh, with airport authorities and everybody I could think of. I couldn't come up with an explanation. And uh, earlier in the day, I'd have been approached by a, um, a chap that knew me. And in those days, I'd actually become part of the committee of the University of New England uh, Parapsychological Society. You know, we're, we're into paranormal research back in the 70s. You now, so being there, done that, that's what, what I keep saying you know, in terms of all this current obsession with UFOs and paranormal. Um, there were people doing that for decades. And um, what he reported to me, which he thought was would have been of interest to me, was that he said that there was uh, apparition phenomena witnessed on a property just on the outskirts of Armadale, at a place called Mount Butler, um, early in the same morning. So here am I having a daylight, what, what essentially was a daylight disc sighting, a silvery metallic object going over the campus, and people were reporting to me an apparitional sighting on a property just outside of the town earlier that morning, and it involved an apparitional thing like a uh, a ghost of a monk, a, a shroud with a dark void of a face, and it was a very bizarre case. And I eventually investigated that, and that Mount Butler location became the focus of ongoing UFO activity, um, more physical craft being seen, um, some really interesting correlations with, with other events. And, and so it was yet another one of these window areas, but it was a very striking confirmation for me just how strange the UFO or UAP phenomena can become, um, because uh, the Mount Butler area and my own personal daylight disc sighting uh, confirmed to me that there was something incredibly strange going on. And outside of Armadale, particularly at Mount Butler, was another one of these, one of a better word, window area, whatever, the current buzzwords, portals, of God knows what else. But there's all sorts of variants on the titles that people give to them. But Mount Butler became a, 
a focus for unusual activity. And people have approached me since then and have told me that from time to time there's been ongoing activity there. But I, I have noticed that that area has now been built out well and truly. It's almost like suburbia out there on the outskirts of Armadale. So it's no longer the remote area. And also, additionally, it doesn't seem to have the one of the interesting areas that actually correlated somewhat um, with an event that took place um, at, on the other side of Australia, um, and that's the Northwest Cape sighting occurred almost in the same time. You can see an account I give of this, the comparison between the two on my blog site, where I compare Northwest Cape to Mount Butler um, in 1973. Um, both sites had different frequencies involved with ground stations. The one at Armadale, outside of Armadale, involved um, ionosphere atmospheric research, and they were bouncing radar waves off the ionosphere at a certain frequency. Over in Western Australia with Northwest Cape, um, they were using very, very low frequencies for their communications with the US submarines, that kind of stuff. So somewhere on that spectrum, there's a lot of interesting UFO phenomena correlated with uh, with the, the frequencies that are within that spectral range. So yet again, another area of promising study that a lot of people are trying to focus on right now. Um, and that was evident back in 1973. And more recently, other uh, sources have suggested that uh, those frequencies are of particular interest when it comes to tracking UFO phenomena and maybe bagging UFO phenomena as well or UAP phenomena. And we would all like to bag one, for sure. So, oh, absolutely. Wouldn't we what? So how, like, how did you feel when you sort of experienced that UFO? Like, like how long were you um, sort of investigating into this sort of thing and then just realised like you're actually seeing something? Well, I've I got to admit that particular week, I was incredibly jaded about UFOs and flying saucers because uh, back in the big smoke in Sydney, there were front page stories going on with a UFO sighting at Taree day after day, early morning, 10 past seven. Uh, front page newspaper story in the Daily Mirror. They were loving it, you know, day after day, hundreds of people. But as it turned out, you know, I, I'd, I'd gone to the trouble of checking out myself and I was absolutely certain that what people were watching was the Queen of UFO misidentification, Venus. And I got up, and it was pretty rare for me to get up very early in, at that time uh, with the university life. So, uh, getting up at 10 past 7 was a real struggle, but I, I was coherent at the time and we we all did predictive studies of it and we confirmed that, yes, what people were seeing at Tari was Venus. And and so um, I was pretty jaded with UFOs that week because it was all about identified flying objects and eventually the Mirror and the Sun newspapers, these were afternoon newspapers, finally concluded that, yeah, yeah, it was probably Venice, and that that explanation came out in a little little story about twenty pages in, rather than the front page story over the preceding day. So, um, um, and so it was quite a shock for me to have that sighting of my own. I thought, "Whoa, what's going on here?" You know, like, and and it wasn't what I was expecting. You know, I certainly did not have that on my mind when I was walking across the quadrangle. The primary motivation in my mind was food. <laughs> Get into that canter and get some get some food. That's it. That was it. No, I didn't that's get, fair enough. I, I didn't get dinner that night. So. Oh, 
Uh, yeah, that was a, a real sort of sacrifice for me in terms of UFO investigation. So. Yeah. And so no doubt you've obviously had some more um, encounters obviously in the future or after that one? Yeah, not, not so much in the future. I'm not there yet, but, uh, <laughs> but, but certainly over the intervening decades, uh, yeah, there have been lots of interesting experiences and that kind of stuff that I've had under very interesting kind of circumstances. And uh, um, yeah, that would require a, a lot more time to describe no, a lot of that. I was you know, I've, I've been all, yeah, this subject has taken me all over the world and, and um, investigated cases in practically every state of Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, been in New Guinea, um, been up uh, through Asia, particularly spent a lot of time in Thailand and China, um, uh, been to the States, lectured there, lectured twice at uh, two different Chinese universities uh, about the UFO subject. Uh, uh, if I was invited to go now, I wouldn't necessarily go back in a rush to China. It doesn't seem as though Australians in particular are welcome there at the moment. Well, let alone the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, so it's certainly been an interesting um, number of decades and uh, I've got no shadow of a doubt that there's something real going on that deserves investigation and my big uh, sort of uh, uh, thing that I focus on is open, scientific, transparent investigations, not um, kind of um, secret uh, military intelligence investigations. That's got to happen up to a certain extent because there's always some suggestion that there's, uh, I guess, nuclear um, threat connections, all that kind of stuff. That, that's been going on for decades. Uh, and it's interesting to see that they're finally paying open attention to it as well in terms of the uh, Congress trying to mandate a, a study group specifically on that area. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think we're supposed to get something in April too, aren't we? Another well, document. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll join the crowd waiting for that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, was, I was kind of, it was hard to get too enthusiastic about the report last year, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm saying, okay, this is good. Where's the detail? <laughs> it's, no, a, it's a start. Data, mate. Data, data, data. That's what we're after. And we didn't get it, of course. Yeah. Uh, mate, so we're getting towards the end of the show there. So we're going to um, smash through these questions that people have been hanging to ask you. Um, so uh, first one here is... Um, what constitutes a legit report in your opinion? Number of witnesses, hour of the day, length, physical evidence, etc. Um, yeah, because of my scientific background, I, I tend to focus on a lot of um, physical evidence type cases, you know, and I've been known to have a strong focus on UFO landing cases over the decade. So I'm, I'm a real enthusiast for that kind of UFO landing case where physical traces are left on the ground or whatever environment they turn up in. Uh, the trouble with that is it's been somewhat diluted by the obsession with crop circles and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Horace Drew, who helped me out in, on biological DNA research and abduction case, the one that involved Peter Curie, um, in which I wrote the book, Here of the Alien, uh, he's developed quite an obsession with that kind of area. Not, and given what I know of his pathway to that obsession with crop circles, I perfectly understand why. He's become obsessed with crop circles. But he and I, like a lot of scientists do, we agree to argue. And scientists argue all the bloody time. And we disagree a lot of the time as well. And so that's the nature of the scientific game. Uh, we're looking for hard evidence to confirm people's hypotheses about what's going on. Um, to me, I'm 
fairly skeptical about crop circles, Horace isn't. So, um, but you know, plenty of lo long conversations and arguments about crop circles. But as far as he's specialty about DNA, he, he, he and the team we put together uh, mounted a really good, I think, investigation uh, of Peter Curie's alien, um, well, so-called alien abduction case, the, uh, the fact that we had a biological sample, physical evidence. Um, and investigations require a lot of time, a lot of effort. They're not done in the day. They're not, you know, like, Peter Curie's case, Peter knows it too. It's still ongoing. We've been at it for decades. There's stuff still happening. Um, it's, uh, I got to know Peter back in the, uh, uh, the late 80s. And, uh, uh, and so we started to mount a serious investigation by the, uh, not the late 80s, early 90s rather. And, uh, but he had an experience in 88. And then the, the most interesting one for me personally was the 92 experience that led to the hair sample and uh, that was so interesting and so confronting uh, that I had uh, um, sort of a division of Simon and Schuster in New York contacting me wanting me to write a book about it I didn't have to present a manuscript they wanted one so um, that was based on some of the preliminary reporting we did so that was a fairly easy one to do um, but it, it to me that was one of the more interesting investigations because it involved credible witness, uh, one that was willing to uh, lay all his cards on the table and um, looked at the good, bad and the ugly of the whole story. And, um, and out of it came physical evidence that seemed to support the idea that he had something quite extraordinary happening to him. It's not proof of aliens in its own right. As a scientist, we'd want to have um, literally hundreds of these sorts of samples. And that was the reason why I wrote the book here, The Alien, was to provide a kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a line, a line for um, researchers and investigators and experiences to realise that in order to make progress in, in these controversial areas, you need to at least be able to present kind of credible evidence. It can't be all just anecdotal um, uh, I know that there's a lot of reluctance with some people to report their experiences, but it, um, it'll always be a kind of a, a fringe subject, um, particularly the more controversial aspects of it, like abductions and contact experiences. Um, you know, th there's been a, a huge opening up of, um, of investigations of objects, UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, um, but it's still narrowly focused and uh, there's a bit of a acknowledgement that yeah some paranormal aspects have to be examined but when it comes to the controversial contact cases and abduction cases um, they've got a, a much more difficult road to to, to travel and, and I, I understand why a lot of those groups have become a lot of the people involved that tended to gather together and support themselves and that kind of stuff like that but uh, I think Peter Curie's case was important because it, it did highlight that there is so much that can be done. And that case, to me, was a really excellent case study of what can be done if we deploy the right sort of, um, sort of investigations, research, equipment, studies, scientific testing, that kind of thing. You know? And if there were hundreds of cases like that, well, great. You know, we'd be so much more advanced and 
maybe there are cases like that that exist in the, the secret defence intelligence world. Who knows? We're not seeing much evidence for it, but uh, um, there's a lot that can be done in the public eye. Yeah, no, that's and fair enough. That, that, and, that, and that's what uh, why people should think about sort of sharing their experiences with uh, serious investigators. I know there's a lot of people out there that get worried about reporting their experiences. Who do they report them to? But I think in this day and age, with the benefit of the internet and all that kind of stuff, you can do a lot of homework. And I really encourage people that have had uh, experiences that they're really trying to figure out where they should report them. Uh, they should shop around and get comfortable with the people that they want to report these experiences to and think about making their experiences more publicly available because uh, um, there are groups out there that have the resources to do serious investigations and uh, uh, that's what I would encourage people to do. Yeah, no, that's a great bit of um, a great tip there on for people who uh, want to bring out their sightings or experiences and stuff like that like because yeah definitely need to encourage those sort of people to come forward and yeah they're the ones that are actually help bring out the full disclosure not the government themselves yeah. people that are experiencing these things yeah. yeah i've been focusing on cases that go back 100 years or more you know like one of my primary uh, hobby horses is uh, studying pre-1947 cases and um there's a case there at Parramatta park that i've probably talked far too much about but uh, I'm, I'm sort of working on something substantial on that because there's so much that's come out on that story, a story that happened over 150 years ago, which is either a UFO case or it's a, a case of a early aviation visionary that somehow imagined he saw a, a flying ark land in Parramatta Park and gets taken on board. You know, quite a striking case, 1868, and he had a whole series of experiences that follow. Another one in 1927, at Fernvale up near Moolumbar, country New South Wales. Uh, you look at that report, and I got it from a guy and, and his sister. Uh, he was 10, she was, I think, seven or eight at the time, and they reported that to me. I investigated that over recent decades, and that was like a, a New South Wales Australian version of the Malkin prophecies, literally uh, almost prophesizing what would take place in Virginia, uh, West Virginia in 1966-67 um, it was such a striking early historical case really weird um, ufo sightings entities um, uh, animal mutilations all that kind of stuff it was just a truly strange report and that was from 1927 where i was able to actually talk to the actual witnesses um, that, that lived long enough to tell me the full story so wow. there's a lot of a lot of data out there it's not just something that's happened since 1947 and it's certainly not something that's happened over the last few years it's been ongoing uh worldwide for, for decades for well even hundreds of years thousands of years long, even yeah. well who knows who knows yeah. but, well um, you got the ancient hieroglyphs and all sorts of stuff or, you know aztecs and all sorts of stuff they've got to have some sort of god that they base themselves off yeah. and that's a yeah that, that, that's a difficult and problematical area the old ancient astronauts thing you know it tends to uh draw all sorts of critiquing from the, the skeptics and debunkers. But uh, I've talked to many, many Aboriginals here in Australia and talked to some elders on a lot of going back you know, many, many years. And uh, they've described to me all sorts of striking cases. Even a UFO crash out the back of Burke, you know, in 1969, on the same day as the moon landing, um, hundreds of people, hundreds of school kids 
and a couple of Catholic priests and nuns witnessed an object rising up, almost like a mushroom cloud below it. And uh, apparently it, it crashed and uh, subsequently some strange debris was found. But for anybody who knows what that area is like, you know, unfortunately, that's subject to massive, slow-moving floods. Whenever it does flood, more often than not, it's pretty hot and dry out there. But when it floods, there's a lot of earth moving going on out there, unfortunately. And uh, we were never able to establish an absolute location of that debris. Yeah, but so good luck trying to find getting, it. Yeah, but, but get, they're getting there and talking to locals and getting their confidence, um, we were able to establish that so many people within the Aboriginal community had, that had had hidden experience that they wouldn't share with anybody unless they had some sort of contact with sort of elders and that kind of stuff. And we were able to break through that kind of barrier and, and get a lot of their stories. And um, yeah, that was really striking. And, and that's occurred in a number of different locations in the Kimberleys and up in far north Queensland and, and New South Wales and other locations as well. So it's not just uh, so-called Caucasian white experience. It's uh, something that uh, Aboriginals, our first Australians, have experienced as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just a quick one on the, um, you mentioned before about your case that you studied there, um, or investigated, I should say, um, where you actually got a sample there. Someone's thrown a quick question in there asking if it was the sample that identified as a Homo sapien Asian lineage. Um, the hair sample itself seemed to finally give a, constellation of DNA results that suggested you're dealing with a hybrid type sample. Uh, depending on where you took the DNA from, uh, you'd either get an Asian mongoloid, rare, rare Asian mongoloid DNA, or if you took it from the root of the hair, you got a different constellation of DNA results, and that was um, rare bath garlic DNA. And it was the Lahu um, Asian correlation that actually uh, encouraged me to go to Asia and particularly to northern Thailand and southern China to actually investigate why there were uh, aspects of Lahu DNA turning up in a blonde hair sample, what appeared to be a blonde hair sample taken from a person claiming to have had an abduction experience here in Sydney. And that was a very bizarre mystery. And the investigations we conducted in northern Thailand and southern China really added to that. And, Extraordinary enough, uh, while we're in Lahu territory in southern China in Yunnan province, this would have been 2005 or six. Um, you can re read the, the de details on the, on the blog, but um, within one or two weeks of being there, I wish I'd hung around another few weeks, there was a, a UFO way in that era of, of Yunnan province. So uh, it was pretty striking, and that was in Lahu territory. Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm just going to add my own curiosity. Like, um, there wasn't any traces. Like, I'm not sure if you can actually trace it, but, like, you know, the rarity, like, the, the gene mutates a little bit, like, for, um, I suppose, mutant, mutant, yeah, becoming a mutant is a horrible way to call it. But, um, you know, like, albino, like, uh, was it traces of, like, albinoism no, or something no, like that? There was no albinoism in the sample. Um, it, it appeared to be optically transparent, but there was this. Uh, Asian mongoloid DNA, which suggested it should have been dark coloured, black, but it was optically transparent. Very unusual hair sample. Even when, when we examined it under the microscope, it seemed unusual. Um, and it was that early data that we published that led to us getting a bit of limited funding, uh, private funding, that allowed us to take it 
steps further. Unfortunately, a lot of this kind of stuff can be fairly expensive. It's not something that can be done on the cheap. You know, actually, there's a lot we could have done if DNA testing had been cheaper back in the day, but we took it as far as we could. And there's still some samples left and people contact us all the time wanting us to hand over the remains of the sample, but um, we're not about to do that unless uh, we can get absolute confirmation that we're dealing with a fairly credible kind of um, protocol or uh, strategy for investigating what remains of a, a largely compromised sample. So it, uh, it's an important sample and uh, we don't get many of them, despite the fact that I've, I've asked most of the key re abduction researchers of the day to come forward with their samples and uh, uh, they weren't too forthcoming. So Yeah, I uh, suppose a lot of the samples would get destroyed in the process too, wouldn't they? Um, some of the testing, um, there's lots more advanced testing that can be done now, um, but uh, we're dealing with basically uh, only remnants of the original quality sample. And even, even when we first got our hands onto it, we regarded it as a compromised sample in the sense that it was degraded. Um, so we're constantly dismayed that we managed to get so much out of such a small sample. And I showed you the power of the technique, and that's why I promoted the, the approach that let's do a forensic approach on these sort of cases. But if, if all these abduction experiences are occurring in the manner that people are describing, it suggests that there's some sort of contact going on, forensic style contact, and every contact leaves a trace. And that trace we should be able to find. And we've got the power of various techniques now with DNA investigations and DNA research tools right now to verify that claim, but unfortunately not many people sort of came forward. We, we did investigate a lot of cases, even in the Betty and Barney Hill case, the dress involved in that case, um, uh, we were able to deploy DNA testing on that and we were able to verify that in fact, the pink stain that was on the dress was um, spider's blood indigenous to the New Hampshire area. And that demonstrated the power of the technique. It was, wow. she apparently must've sat on a, a, a poor spider out, in the, out, in the, <laughs> out there in the, in the, in the uh, bushland and that caused the pink stain. But there are other aspects of that early investigation that we didn't realize at the time that suggested that there were possible correlations with um, um, sort of uh, Hmong DNA. Uh, that, that, that's only really resurfaced in the last year or so. Now, because that was only a trace result, we're a little bit sort of ambivalent about what it means. Um, but the important thing for, for me is that the Lahu, which we did correlate with Peter Curry's hair sample, and the Hamong DNA that was found on Betty Hill's dress, um, they, they're closely interconnected in the tribal areas in the golden so-called Golden Triangle, Northern Thailand um, and, and uh, Southwest China. Um, in that sort of area there. And it may be um, purely um, uh, a phantom finding that doesn't have too much substance, but it's interesting enough to go further with that um, if there was Hmong trace DNA. Now, one of the explanations is that maybe it was a Hmong uh, sort of dry cleaner uh, on the dress. <laughs> That yeah. kind of stuff, because Hmong were let into America after the Vietnam War, um, and uh, but 
the information that I've got from the people who have had access to the dress suggests that it hadn't been dry cleaned. So yeah. um, you have to explain why there's a trace of Hmong DNA on there. So even nice. even now, there's still strange aspects to this case. Um, yeah, everywhere though, I think sort of. So that gives you an idea. <laughs> you know, like this is a case study that's had such vast dimensions to it that it's really quite amazing. Yeah, the fact that you actually had evidence as well is um, phenomenal on its own basis, really, to get on sort of have along with all the cases. It was strong enough to make me rethink my attitudes to alien abduction stories, put it that way. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, look, we're sort of running out of time because of the Zoom um, bloody alarms come up again, so we've got about eight minutes to go and crack, smash through some okay. more questions here. Um, so, unfortunately, we can't keep going with this. I thought it was going to be a very long show. <laughs> So, um, all right, so next one, um, what are your thoughts on Stephen Greer? Um, uh, he has been trying to disclose UFO information for decades, so I guess what's your opinion on um, him? Yeah, better that I don't disclose anything. <laughs> um, my, my comments there speak for itself. Like, uh, I, I admire what the guy has done in certain areas, but uh, um, what he's achieved, other people have achieved the same sort of stuff. So he's basically and, taking credit uh, for the things that people have done in the past there. Well, I'm not going to go down that path. <laughs> this, uh, this is such a litigious subject that, um, you know, I don't want to say too much. No, fair enough. All right, we'll go and smash on the next one there. Um, if I can quickly find it. Uh, someone's asked you, um, why do you think the government is giving us such soft disclosure? Um, well, it depends on how you look at it and where you look. Um, some of it's been very hard disclosure, like, you know, I was dismayed to find a defence scientist within our own government who was doing almost full-time UFO research on JRB time. It wasn't sanctioned UFO research. Uh, his own boss was trying to stop him doing it, but he is a guy who had almost unique nuclear science expertise, and so they had to keep him, and, and so they had to tolerate his UFO interests. And he was, for dec you know, for a long, long time, trying to advocate serious scientific investigations within um, military intelligence and military science and uh, uh, almost succeeded. Um, but there was too much politicking going on. But now here we go around the merry-go-round yet again, and we might be seeing evidence of uh, similar activities occurring right now and being promised to Congress. Uh, so maybe, maybe we'll, we'll have another round of the, the merry-go-round yet again. Yeah. But, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of information out there. Um, so I, I've always been an advocate of uh, public UFO data um, and really uh, I'm a little tired of waiting for the government of the days or the military of the days to reveal their data because so much of it's already been revealed. So, um, yep, I, I, I'll love it when I see it. Yep, no, fair enough. Uh, so next question is... Um... Do you think or know that the Aussie government has at any time had exotic material in the possession, uh, be that recovered or on loan from other nations to study? Um, I'll be circumspect there because there's a, a lot of interesting developments that I've been privy to that uh, I might be able to describe in more detail at a later date. But yep. yeah, there's some interesting, interesting things that I've been told about from a number of diverse parties and in particular few key people um and so yep uh stay tuned yeah definitely we'll get, definitely get you on the show again mate because um 
we've got a lot to cover with um, your history of this whole investigations and researching, mate. It's, um, I think it's just a big wormhole, really, that we'll be diving into, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, um, look, mate, I think we'll end it there. I can't really see any more questions that are coming through. Uh, oh, hang on. Uh, oh, here, here's one that. So, uh, in your opinion, where is the best spot in Australia and times to see these crafts, do you think? Uh, it, it varies. Um, different places around Australia have long histories associated with UFO activity. Uh, far north Queensland, Tully, that's got a long, long history. Um, areas around the Gold Coast, Queensland, uh, St. George, Queensland. I'll just quickly roam around Australia. Uh, yep. Take a, a UFO tour job. Maybe I should become a UFO tour <laughs> You might. You make a killing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it would be good. Yeah, but wait, wait till COVID's done. Yeah. Yep. But uh, uh, New South Wales, North Coast, as I've said, uh, uh, that whole area, the North Coast, uh, particularly around Kempsey, uh, around my old little old hometown, Grafton, uh, Armadale, Mount Butler, uh, out of Berkway, Bawarana, uh virtually. The list is endless. You go uh, right down to the south coast areas around Nowra and the southern area around there, loaded with so many sightings, some very striking sightings as well. Uh, Victoria has had plenty of areas. Um, you know, with our famous report from Westall, you know, ha happening in the suburbs, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, there's so many areas, and, and Tasmania has had a very rich UFO history, really um brilliantly sort of collected by the the civilian group of the day the tufari the tasmanian ufo investigation center um areas around medina uh, uh devonport um uh, particularly highland the area highland place that was euphemistically called highland farm in central tasmania i went up there checked that one out myself as well amazing area with ongoing phenomena there uh south australia uh, plenty of phenomena there, plenty of sightings there. Uh, and in terms of government investigations, um, the Woomera test site was not only a test site for man-made activity, there was such a rich history of UFO activity there. Uh, something else was going on there, watching them doing their big science things. So somebody else's big science was observing our big science as well, out at the Woomera and also at Maralinga. And the same goes from Northern Territory. Uh, heaps of areas there, Pine Creek, good old uh, Pine Gap area, many, many reports from there, um, up through Darwin, Western Australia, so many areas there, it's staggering. I helped out a scientific team do an investigation of uh, of light phenomena that was occurring in the Kimberleys, um, and they actually recorded some stuff, uh, uh, but we had to get permission from the local Aborigines to access that site, but it was a recurring area there as well right down through Western Australia. And of course, uh, uh, my mate, mate Ross uh, Coltart has uh, done a good job of uh, providing a renewed focus on Northwest Cape, but uh, certainly needed it. Uh, and the uh, area um, around Northwest Cape, Exmouth and Ningaloo Reef, all those areas around there have exceptional UFO activity. And I could go on and on and on. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, but but, but it, 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 it's hard to get a handle on uh, the frequency and uh, guaranteeing a sighting. You know, it, there are areas that are ongoing and you, you just have to pay attention. Yeah, I sort of feel it's um, well, right place, right time for a lot of people. Because like some people say, yeah, it's a hotspot for sure. Then someone will go there and go, 
I saw nothing. So it's like houses is a yeah. hotspot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there, there are lots of uh, people. That, actually, there are some individuals, um, and we we have our own share of them here uh, uh, that seem to attract UFO activity as well. So uh, yeah, yeah they're, they're interesting people to check out and maybe make good friends with because uh, if they become the focus of UFO activity, it's worthwhile accompanying them on their uh, activities and uh, see what you see yourself as well. Definitely. Well, mate, we've got to end it there, mate, because I think we've got less than 30 seconds. So, mate, thank you very much for coming on the show, mate. I might try and get you on for the uh, next one in a couple of weeks' time if you're available. And um, yeah, so definitely get you on, man. So, okay. Right, guys, thank you very much for getting on the show there, guys. I'll um, hopefully still be on here when it ends out. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, again, thank you very much, Bill, for coming on the show, mate. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. My pleasure. And, um, by the sounds of it, everyone's enjoyed having you on here, mate. Fantastic having you on. Thank you very much. Okay, all the best. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.